The following is a listener-supported ministry from the Grace Evangelical Society. Hi there. Welcome to this question-and-answer episode of Grace in Focus Radio. Today, Bob Wilkin and Ken Yates will look at a couple of questions. Did Jesus ever call himself God or refer to himself as deity? Also, does the word life in Greek take on different meanings in the different Gospels due to the respective intent of the authors or in different contexts? So it sounds like we're going to touch on hermeneutics, Christology, intent, and other things like that. The Grace Evangelical Society has a number of resources that you could use, even a free magazine that you could subscribe to. Our website is faithalone.org, and I'll tell you more about it at the end of this discussion. Now, here are Bob and Ken. Welcome to Grace and Focus. Uh, Ken, I believe you have a question. We probably have a couple of questions. We'll see how many we can get in this slot. But uh... Yes, the first one comes from Blake about John chapter 10, verse 34, where it says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him talking about Jesus, whom the Father sanctified and sent the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So they were taking up stones to stone him in verse 31. And what had happened is he had made a couple of statements about eternal security, that the one who believes in Jesus is never going to perish. He gives them eternal life. They're in his hand. They're in the Father's hand. And then he stopped and saying, I and my Father are one, which in his answer in verse 34, he's saying, I'm calling myself the Son of God. So they object. And Jesus' answer is, is it not written in the law, you are God's? Now, what verse is that? John 34, but it's yeah. found in Psalm 82.6. Okay. Now, here's what a famous New Testament scholar who wrote a massive two-volume commentary on John, Raymond Brown, here's what he says about John 10.34 and the psalm that it's attached to. He says, The psalm was understood as a castigation of unjust judges. So the people called Theoi, or gods, are unjust judges. They're not good judges. They're bad judges. Right. And it says, although they have been given the title, quote, gods, unquote, because of their quasi-divine function, and Raymond Brown says, judgment belongs to God, according to Deuteronomy 117. So if you're given the function of judgment, you are doing God's work on earth, right? Right. And so they shall die like other men, even though they've been given the title gods. And he says the same exalted estimation of what a judge should be is implicit in the expressions whereby the people were told to submit themselves to the judges. For example, they shall appear before Yahweh, Deuteronomy 19.17, or the people should be brought to God. Exodus 21.6 and Exodus 22.9. So when they were appearing before the judges who were in that role representing God upon right, earth, right. they were appearing before God. Right. So in a sense, in a theocratic nation, if the United States was a theocratic nation, then when you would appear before a judge, you'd be appearing before God. This is an interesting thing because when you see the phrase Son of God in the New Testament, like in John 1— 
we read our Christian beliefs into it, like when, when the disciples say, well, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. They don't mean what we know Christ to be, which is he is the second person of the Trinity. And so when they say Jesus is the Son of God, they mean he's the King. He's the King of Israel. And as the King, he would be God's representative upon earth. Right. right? So every one of the kings in the southern kingdom, kings of Judah, was, in some sense, God's representative on earth. And were, in some sense, the Son of God. Right. The centurion at the cross, when he calls Jesus, truly this man was the Son of God. He didn't mean he was the second person of the Trinity. He meant what was above him was true. Above his head was the king of the Jews. Exactly. In some sense, he recognized that Jesus was the representative of the Jewish God. He was working for him. In some sense, that was his understanding of it. And even if he had come to a fuller understanding, even if so, he would have been saying, Okay, this is God's representative. Yes, he is doing God's work. He's doing God's work. That's he's it. a righteous man. He's a righteous man. Which and is what he way, also said. That's right. He said both those things. This is the Son of God. This was a righteous man. So what we need to recognize, Jesus is using a common function within Jewish interpretation. We might say, well, he's kind of playing games here. And Raymond Brown, if you read his commentary, he explains that. But basically what he's saying is, if I claim to be sent from God and to represent God, you shouldn't object because the Old Testament says the same thing of even unjust judges, let alone just judges. Now, of course, Jesus is much more than simply God's representative, right? He's much more than someone that was sent from the Father. But unlike many people today who feel like you have to understand every single thing about Jesus in order to be born again, he's not concerned that they understand everything about what the expression Son of God means or what the expression Messiah means. He wants them to understand that it means he guarantees eternal salvation to all who believe in him. A couple verses later, verse 37, when he talks about If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, in other words, in the Gospel of John, Jesus performs eight miracles. Well, eight signs. Eight signs, yeah. Way more than eight miracles. Uh, These eight signs. This fits in the context, it seems to me. Talking about the Son of God being the one who's doing the work of the Father. Look at the things that I'm doing. Doesn't that prove to you that I am doing the works of the Father? I am doing God's work upon the earth. Only God could do this. So why do you have a problem with me being called the Son of God if a judge in the Old Testament was called the Son of God because he was doing God's work upon earth? Look at the works that I am doing. Therefore, he is, in the Old Testament way of wording it, the Son of God. The fact that people were objecting, they were really not objecting for the fact that Jesus didn't give enough proof. He gave plenty of proof. Their rejection of him was culpable. They should have easily been able to see that this was the long-promised Messiah. They should have welcomed him, and the kingdom would have come in that generation. And we could also say that the whole thing in John about that the Father has sent me. Well, look at my works. He has obviously sent me, and I'm doing his works. Okay, another question we have here is from Steve. Does defining the teaching intent of a gospel book change the hermeneutics, which is interpretation, and exegesis of seemingly the same phrases of a different book. In other words, if a phrase occurs in different books, 
can it mean different things depending upon the intent of the book. For example, John is a book of instruction for everlasting life, while Luke is about sanctification. Does the word for life in Greek take on a different meaning because of the teaching intent of the different books? Well, so let's take the big question that Steve is asking. Does the teaching intent impact our understanding of the book 100%? Absolutely, right? right. Right. John's Gospel is a good example. If we think John's Gospel is written to some mixed audience of believers and unbelievers, and in which some people say, and that it's got multiple purposes, then that's going to confuse us. Because what John's written, John twenty thirty one, is to unbelievers that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name, that is, everlasting life in his name. And if we misunderstand that, and we think the purpose is other than that, well, then we're going to make a lot of confusion. I've read people who think that the promise of everlasting life in John's gospel is a sanctification issue in John's gospel. Not a justification issue, not a regeneration issue. So they think the saving message in John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him. Done. (laughs) They don't finish it. (laughs) Right. Shall not perish, but has everlasting life is understood as sanctification truth for the person who's already believed the first part. When they look at John twenty thirty one, they often say, well, see, it doesn't say everlasting life. They say it just says life, so this is more than just eternal life. This is fullness of life, and this is other things. And they get awful confused. Let me give an example, Steve, of, I think, outside the Gospels where it's easy. I'm teaching right now a Sunday school class on James. And the normal understanding of James by most commentators is this— James was written to Jewish people who are born again, that James 1.18 shows that. And they are being warned or told that if they put their faith into practice, if they persevere in good works until the end of their lives, then they will win eschatological salvation. That's what most commentators say. And eschatological means last days, but they call final salvation. Right, right. right. And so they say, James one twenty one, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls or your lives. They say that refers to final or eschatological salvation, and you can't have that now. That's future, and you've got to win it by persevering. They say James 2.14, can that faith save him is the way they interpret it, or faith save him. They say, no, no, the only way you can win that salvation is by persevering, and a persevering faith. And they go to 4.12, God is able to save and same thing, save and destroy. They say that's an eschatological future salvation. James 5.20, they say it's a future salvation. They misunderstand the whole thing. Yes, it is future, but the future salvation is in this life. And it's saying, if I receive the word implanted, then I'm saved from the deadly consequences of a sinful life. And the same thing with faith without works is dead. If I'm not putting my faith into practice, I'm not going to be saved from God's discipline and judgment in this life. And the same thing in John 5.20, same thing. So it radically impacts the understanding of James if we understand it's written to born-again people who are already eternally secure. So that's going to drive what the word save means. Right. Right. Because if I think that save means some kind of future eschatological salvation, and they mention the the last judgment and this sort of thing, well, if that's the case, 
then I don't think born-again people have everlasting life. Right. Bizarre. But that's the way lots of commentators are today. So anyway, Steve, what I would suggest is, yes, your understanding. And in terms of the word life in the Gospels, the word life in the Gospels means whatever the context dictates. If it's talking about everlasting life, it's talking about everlasting life. Well, I know we're out of time. Ken's giving me that evil eye. But thanks, Steve, and thank you all. And keep grace in focus. Thank you, gentlemen, for that great discussion. Did you miss an episode of Grace in Focus that you really wanted to hear? Just come to faithalone.org. That's faithalone.org. We have all our past episodes right there on the site. In addition, we have all kinds of free resources available for you. It's all designed to help you mature and grow in your understanding of Scripture. So come visit us at faithalone.org. That's faithalone.org. On this program, we keep our requests for financial partners to a minimum. But if you are interested in becoming a financial partner with Grace in Focus, you can find out how to do that at faithalone.org. Our team is really great about answering questions, comments, and feedback. If you've got some, we hope to hear from you. Let me give you our email address so you can do just that. It's radio at faithalone.org. That's radio at faithalone.org. On the next episode of Grace in Focus, how can a, quote, true believer stop believing? And what is the result if this is possible? Please plan to join us. This is the Grace Evangelical Society. Until next time, let's keep grace in focus. The proceeding has been a listener-supported ministry from the Grace Evangelical Society.